Hey, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. And Joe, it's it's high times for the state of Georgia right now. Georgia football, back-to-back national champions. Of course, two years ago, you had the Braves win the World Series. And this year, in their most dominant year they've had probably since Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and John Smoltz were sitting up there, they just clinched the division tonight and have just maybe been better than any of those teams that we ever saw back in the 90s with how dominant they've been this year and just so star-laden and just uh, incredible accomplishment, and they got it over the Phillies. That's right, Dan. And, you know, fittingly, they defeat a team that was expected to challenge them along with the Mets for the division crown all year. The Phillies, of course, made it to the World Series last year and lost, and they beat them and celebrate at Philadelphia at their home field. And you're right. I mean, this is a team that stacks up and may even be pound for pound better and deeper than uh, those great Braves teams in the 90s and even early 2000s. And I think what stands out to me with this team and separates them is the offensive prowess of the lineup. Mm -hmm. You know, those teams in the 90s, early 2000s had great pitching, but with the exception of Chipper Jones and Andrew Jones, not always the deepest lineups with other uh, position players. And I heard a stat tonight during uh, the recap of their win in Philadelphia that the Braves, of course, lead the major leagues in home runs this year. Matt Olson, the first baseman, has 51 home runs. And apparently, even if you removed Matt Olson's 51 home runs, the Braves would still lead the majors in home runs. That is crazy. So they have more than 51 home runs, more than the next closest team. Yeah, so I've never heard of a stat like that. And so, you know, that just kind of, to me, speaks volumes and kind of sums up their season. You know, it's that perfect uh, marriage of pitching and just excellent offense that's carried them all season. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, though, Joe, because you think about, like, they would have, you know, Chipper Jones and Andrew Jones were the standard ones. But outside of that, I mean, Javi Lopez was was a decent hitter, never great. Fred McGriff was a great hitter when the Braves had him, but he was only there for about four or five years. You had people like Kenny Lofton that would leave quickly, David Justice. You know, the Braves never held on to those guys that were really great hitters with the exception of the Joneses. I mean, Mark Teixeira left pretty quickly. I mean, usually they would kind of get swallowed up by different teams. So you rarely ever had, like, more than three guys that were great hitters at once. Right, exactly. And when they won the World Series in 95, that clinching uh, game six, it was a one to nothing win with where Tom Gladden and Mark Wollers uh, pitched a, a one hitter, um, you know, against Cleveland. And that was the game where David Justice, of course, hits the solo home run. The Braves are basically saying, just give me a run. You know, get Gladden's like, give me a run and, and we'll win this game. You know, they were asking for anything. And now this offense just has an embarrassment of riches where you think of Acuna, um, Albies, Riley. Olsen and Azuna, and the list just goes on. That's right. I mean, in, in this team, it's like, just give me six runs and I'll be okay. Yeah, and that impacts the pitching staff. You know, that gives them more flexibility, more leverage to work with. It, it's completely different, I think, for a pitcher to go out there and feel like they're pitching with a big lead than feeling like every hitter, you know, could tie up the game or, you know, mess up the entire night. So I think that makes a huge difference. You know, I mean, that being said, you know, um, I'm, I'm interested to see how the rest of the regular season plays out and, of course, the postseason. You'll have more time to talk about that. 
you know, I guess my only cause for concern would be, you know, they've been so great all season. They're wrapping up the division title on September 13th, with, which is just unheard of. You know, it is rare for a team to have such a great regular season in baseball in the modern era and be able to run it all the way through the postseason. You do feel like a lot of times these teams that have those epic postseasons, most recently the team that the Braves beat, which I thought really was more like the World Series to get the World Series ring a couple of years ago in the Dodgers. I mean, that year the Dodgers were kind of like the team that the Braves were this year where they were just amazing in the regular season and nobody thought that the Braves could possibly have a chance against them. You know, that's – and the Dodgers ended up going out, and, you know, in the NL Finals. Um, yep. But, yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I, there's been all kinds of instances where you had teams that were just incredible in the regular season that really just weren't able to get it done in the playoffs because baseball is all about when you get hot. Yes, precisely. And so that is definitely a concern. Um, and I think, you know, what bodes well for the Braves, what could help them, though, is the fact that they have a home run hitting team. And in the postseason, I heard Jeff Francoeur talk about this a few times this year. In the postseason, you're not going to have very often stretches where you string together a lot of hits in order to manufacture runs. A lot of times, in the you know, nowadays, you're more that feast or famine mm-hmm. in the postseason. You got to hit a home run, especially when you're facing an ace pitcher on the other side. And so the Braves' ability to hit a home run. That, that's going to go a long way in the postseason, hopefully. Yeah, definitely, because, you know, what's the best way to take out someone uh, someone's ace is to get a, a home run or a couple home runs or, you know, three guys on base and get a grand slam or something. You can you can knock out a really good pitcher earlier and get some of the not-as-good guys that way. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, you know, matchup-wise, I think the good thing about this team, too, is that I feel like they'll match up well with just about any team because of the depth of the roster – you know, it's not just the offense. Obviously, I've concentrated on that, but the pitching rotation is very solid. When you think about Max Freed, you think about Charlie Morton, who's like the fourth starter with 14 wins on the season. Spencer Strider, to me, uh, Dan, he's brought just kind of an extra element to this team. You know, he wasn't even on the team two years ago when they win the World Series, mm-hmm. and now it's like he's just this added piece that has just allowed this team to kind of take off. Right, I mean, he's become their solid number two guy that's not much of a drop-off from Max Freed when a couple years ago, I mean, it was a big drop-off between Freed and the next best pitcher. Right, and I think it's really probably a matter of time before he eventually kind of overtakes him as the number one guy. Like, oh, it's kind of like, and maybe he doesn't, but it's kind of like how Kevin Millwood in the 90s kind of flirted, you know, as the number one or number two at times because he was, you know, right there with some of the other guys. Yeah, I mean, Millwood at times looked just as good as Maddox or Smoltz or Glavin or any of them. I mean, he had stuff that on certain games was was superior to theirs. Yes, yes. And then, and then lastly, you've got Bryce Elder, you know, who, of course, pitched at the University of Texas. And at one time this year, he led the National League in earned run average. He was an all-star. And so, like, that, what, what a great consolation to have in your rotation. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, really, there, there's no holes in this team. And I say that knocking on wood because you, that's when you start talking about teams like this is when they fail. But I just it's just hard for me to see how anybody could possibly get the Braves. I think it's their year. They've got a good chance. All right, Joe. Well, speaking of your year, it's finally Coco Golf's year. Uh, you know, we've been talking about her now for three years. She didn't quite get to the pinnacle as quickly as Serena Williams did, 
I had said on the show so many times that I thought that golf was an excellent tennis player. The problem that she had was that Iga Zwiatek was only four or five years older than her. And mm-hmm. Zwiatek is, you know, an almost perfect tennis player. Well, finally, golf got the setup to where Zwiatek got knocked out in, you know, inconceivably early in the U.S. Open. Uh, you had Anz Jabor get knocked out early. You had Pegula get knocked out early. And all of a sudden, Coco Golf has this clear path to where she gets the finals and has to take on Sabalenka. And the good, the good thing that she has against Sabalenka, which while Sabalenka, I've said this so many times, is the strongest tennis player there is in women's. I mean, her serves, her forehands, she's maybe one of the strongest uh, women's tennis players I've ever seen. She's not very mentally strong. The, the reason that Sabalenka hasn't won a major yet is she lets the she lets things pile up in her mind. She gets mad really easily. Uh, she doesn't focus that well. And so if you can get in her mind a little bit, then you can you can make her win. And someone like Coco Golf who moves as well as she does, that's actually kind of a bad setup for Sabalenka because Golf is, is pretty pretty mentally pretty strong. She doesn't have a lot of let things phase her that much. And I kind of thought that. Out of all of the big time tennis players that Coco Golf could match up with, that Sabalenka would actually be someone that would be good for her. And so when I saw that opportunity, I was really fascinated to watch it. And, you know, Coco Golf, true to form, Sabalenka came out and killed her in the first set, but she was able to get that second set, 7 6, and then Sabalenka's mind went and she, she lost her focus. And then Coco Golf was able to take it in the third set. And I thought that was such a great moment because I've been cheering for Coco Golf for a while. I knew she would get it, but I, I was kind of starting to think that it, it was going to take a while. And I knew it was going to have to be one of these circumstances where these really tight, consistent tennis players uh, like Zwiatek, Jabor, and Pegula would need to get knocked out first. And so Coco Golf got that set up. Yeah, it really felt like uh, for me when I, when I saw that she had won, that I felt like she cleared a major hurdle. Just seeing her kind of celebrate, kind of greeting friends and family in the stands um, kind of felt like, you know, this big sigh of relief. And for her to rally after losing that first set, you know, I don't know if I really expected when I saw she lost the first set. I'm not really sure I really expected her to come back from that. No, I wouldn't have expected that either. And that's why, I mean, I said if she could just get that second set win against Sabalenka, then she would have a good chance because – you would think that once she loses that first set, Sabalenka can put her away. And, and you know, golf, to her credit, hung in there and knew that if I can just win this in a tight one, that I'm going to have the middle edge going into the third set. And she was able to keep that because, yeah, when I saw the way that Sabalenka beat her in that first set, I, I was worried because just of how strong she is and how hard her serves are. And like I said, I mean, there's nobody else that can hit it the way Sabalenka can. Mm-hmm. And it's always interesting, you know, psychologically, when you look at those situations, like the person who wins the first set and the two out of three, you know, you're glad to win the first set, but you're kind of like, you know, with how pressure works, I got to win the second one, or otherwise the other person suddenly has the momentum. Well, and, and to be honest, Joe, I mean, you know, when you do amateur tennis like I do, that's all you do. You don't ever do three out of five sets. You do two out of three. And personally, I find that a lot more entertaining because you have a lot more chances for comebacks, like what you see with Coco Golf. Uh, than you do when you're playing a five-set match. Plus, I just think that's just cruel to make people do that. Oh, yeah. From a viewer uh, standpoint, it's so much better to do it two out of three. Like, you know, the narrative, I would say, you know, for anybody that's trying to market sports, I mean, it's better when things fit into those tighter windows as much as you can. Like, that that helps sports. We've seen that with baseball. 
with a pitch clock, like anything that you can do to speed up the pace of a game, I think is always better. Well, I think it's great for softball too. I mean, I personally, in a lot of ways, find softball more enjoyable to watch than baseball because of that seven inning setup that it has and because of the mercy rule and everything. And I, like I said, a lot of times I prefer to watch women's tennis because it goes a lot faster. Oh, look, if I had, you know, I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but if I had complete dominion, like college baseball would be seven innings. I really think that it would be so much more entertaining if it was not nine innings like frozen. Yeah, but, you know, it was, uh, it, it was an amazing moment right there. I would have liked to, you know, I was hoping I'd get to see Serena there maybe to go talk to her and everything. Um, but, you know, from so many elements to it, it's also kind of nice to see Coco Golf beat Sabalenka because she, she is from Belarus and has to have the, the black flag over her, you know, playing in the championship, which I, I don't really support that, Joe. I, you know, because my thing has always been, like, what is what does Sabalenka have to do with the decision of the leader of her country, or what does Medvedev have to do with what Putin's doing? Yeah, they don't to do with that. And I've always been like, what they have to pretend like they're not from this country and they're not allowed to, you know, put that out there. I just, I, I don't like that to be honest. Yeah, I don't think that's good. I mean, I don't think anybody, you know, should be blamed for something that's outside of their control. You know, that's something that their country is doing. Like, I'm sure right. there's things that the U.S. has done. You know, that I'm right. not been happy with, but we shouldn't be personally you know uh, held against because of them exactly i mean you know every, every country in the the history of time has done things that were bad and that they're not proud of and if you want to go back 50 years you can probably find something on any country that makes it worthy of having a black flag over it so i just i just don't think that's fair mm-hmm. right well and i think it's just it's kind of embarrassing for those athletes so like i said as much as it's cool to get to see you know Coco golf getting to beat one of the someone from one of those countries i don't think that's right they have to do that um, and then, you know, of course, in the other final, Djokovic was taking on Medvedev, who had to throw up the black flag also. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, Joe, I, I like I, I like watching Djokovic and Medvedev. They actually do match up pretty well. I mean, two years ago, Medvedev wiped the floor with Djokovic in the U.S. Open final. But I really wanted to see Alcaraz again. And, you know, of course, I, I would have loved to see Ben Shelton make it. But, of course, he had to play Djokovic in the semis. I kind of saw this as is one that was going to be one sided. Um, it's hard to beat Djokovic multiple times in a row, especially in the same major. And when you when when Medvedev had his chance in the second set, he played him really tight and got in the in the tiebreaker, and he couldn't get it done and lost by two points in that second set tiebreaker to go down 2-0. You knew it was it because literally Djokovic doesn't lose set matches when he gets up two sets to nothing. I think I saw a stat that the last time he lost, period, when he was up two sets, oh, it was like 2009. And the last time he lost in a major when he was up uh, two sets, nothing was like 2006 or something. I mean, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Just does not happen um, very frequently, it sounds like. No, I mean, he's just, he's so mentally sound. And I mean, this may have been the best I've ever seen him play. You know, he gets motivated in such different ways because. You know, Alcaraz beat him in a, an amazing five-set bout uh, to win the French Open. And he denied him. You know, he took over world number one there briefly. And in this one, Djokovic, I don't think he lost a set the entire U.S. Open. I, I mean, at least like when I kept seeing the score stick, I never saw him lose a set. And that includes in the finals against Medvedev and the semifinals against Ben Shelton. I mean, he was playing otherworldly in this tournament. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just just out of his mind. And, you know, when I thought about kind of how the tournament ended with uh, Djokovic winning, you know, the three out of four, I just wondered, you know, even though he's happy, you know, obviously win the U.S. Open, I bet, like, there is kind of that feeling of, like, just, just could have won, you know, Wimbledon, I would have had that sweep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but, you know, he's not going to sweep any anytime soon with Alcaraz out there. It's going to be a lot of trading back and forth with them. Mm-hmm. Right. But one good news is, for all of us that are huge American tennis player fans, I thought Ben Shelton showed that he has the chops to be the first American major winner in over 20 years. He made it to the semifinals. Uh, you know, he was able to beat Tiafo and uh, beat Sissipas and beat some really good tennis players. And when he played Djokovic, he, you know, he, of course, made all the kind of mistakes. Djokovic was showing his mental superiority to him and, you know, kind of working through everything. But in the third set, I thought that Shelton really showed a lot of moxie, took it to a tiebreaker, never gave up. And I thought he was getting stronger, not only in the way he was playing, but in a shot placement of his decision-making. And that made me feel really positive for his future because he's only 20 years old. But he hits it, he hits serves that are 160 miles an hour almost. I mean, he hits serves that are like just shy of what Isner could do. And Isner's the greatest server of all time when it comes to speed. He's got a very he's got a left-handed approach that is really hard to, to deal with. It's kind of distracting. And I really think that you can see how well trained he is from his dad who is a tennis coach who coached Ben Shelton to a national championship at the University of Florida. And earlier in his career, he coached the Georgia Tech women's team to a national championship. And, of course, his dad was also a pro tennis player, too, that played in every single major. So I just, you know, I'm kind of excited because I see Ben Shelton is, if he's able to win a major, he's kind of like uh, Tiger Woods, but for tennis. When you see the way his dad is with the teaching and kind of the background that his dad has, but actually an even more uh, accomplished uh, father when it comes to the sports. Yeah, and, and I think you know that that's a great story, and I you know was definitely interested to see him make it to the semifinals, and I feel like that would just be fantastic for um, you know tennis in the United States, you know, to have uh, somebody on the male side that has a chance to win you know a major um, for the first time, like you said, in forever. And I think it's great for him to be, you know, that young and playing at, at that high level. Yeah, I think he's, you know, he seems to have, he has a lot of confidence. He, like I said, he, he serves at a, at a level that not even Djokovic or, or Alcaraz can it serves at. It's just about consistency and playing smarter. And that's something that will come with time. And I think that he's definitely, he has the ability to do it. And his coach is fantastic. Definitely. So, speaking of fantastic, Joe, uh, I thought that as ugly as it was, the Saints getting a 16-15 to win over the Titans was quite beautiful in its own way. It reminded me so much of that game they had a couple years ago when they beat uh, the, the Cowboys like 13-12 to where the Cowboys, you know, kept driving it down the field and kicking field goals, and they probably had three times the yards the Saints did. But the Saints defense just held tight when it mattered and forced them to kick field goals. And Joe, I was up in Nashville last weekend visiting one of my friends, and it was kind of funny that we actually got to watch the Titans game in Nashville in front of the show, Chelsea and all of our friends. No, that's really cool there. Uh, very ironic 
And, you know, it's kind of a one story that probably doesn't get talked about enough. It's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of sub rivalry when you think about like a lot of people that, you know, in the kind of South that root for the Titans, kind of know a lot of people that root for the Saints. And so to me, every time they play, it's kind of that fascinating story. And I think that this game, you know, it's the NFL where anybody can beat anybody with the cliche any given week. So if you're a Saints fan, you definitely have to feel good about winning a week one game. Your defense played great in the red zone. Um, you know, the defense has always been good under uh, Dennis Allen. For me, I was just looking to see how the offense, too, would look under Derek Carr. You know, I am a little bit disappointed with kind of the lack of offensive prowess. I felt like I was going to see a little bit more from Carr as far as getting the offense kind of churning and in more of a rhythm. I felt like they stifled a little bit more. I wanted the passing attack, I think, to look a little bit more proficient. And so we'll see if that comes with time. Um, but definitely just happy to get a win. But on the Titans side, you know, I said this on the show during the offseason, I think the Titans, to me, just made a colossal mistake to just not build enough around Derrick Henry when you're getting towards the end of his prime. And I, I'm afraid that they're in for a long season in Nashville. I am too, Joe. I mean, I don't understand the last two years them going out and drafting these quarterbacks really high if they weren't going to start them over Tannehill. I mean, Tannehill is a quarterback that had a little bit of a career resurgence in the beginning, but a lot of that was because he had Derrick Henry. And they keep going out and drafting quarterbacks and still playing Tannehill, and Tannehill didn't play very good in that game. And I'm just thinking, like, okay, so you wasted a second-round pick on Malik Willis – and a second-round pick on Will Levis, and you're not playing him, what could you have done to put a lot more talent around Derrick Henry and utilize who your real go-to guy is? Precisely. I mean, you should have been drafting where you're trying to select, you know, players where you're thinking, okay, I'm probably one or two uh, positional players away or depth-wise from maybe contending in the AFC. Like, how can I make this happen? And instead, to me, they just made very questionable uh, – drafting and decision-making, and then, of course, you know, letting uh, A.J. Brown go just kind of adds to the frustration. And so, you know, disappointed for the Titans, kind of hit it for them. But, you know, for the Saints, you know, you can build off of a win. The offense hopefully will show improvement. You're obviously playing without Alvin Kamara. But, um, you know, we'll see how, how they move along. Of course, next week they'll play uh, the Panthers and, uh, and Bryce Young. That's right. Um you know, you could definitely see a drop-off not having Kamara, but I will say at least he was getting open, uh, the new TCU running back. I thought that he showed some real, uh, you know, some real speed, some strength, and I think he also showed that he can be a solid weapon in the passing game. He dropped a couple passes, but he was definitely open for him. I think that's something he's going to improve at, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that will probably help the depth at that position, you know, having Kamara out the long run. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, that was – the whole time I was watching that Titans game, I was just sitting there thinking, like, man, if you had just – you know, if you just helped Derrick Henry a little bit, get some get some good offensive linemen that are run blockers, or even, you know what, like something that would help Derrick Henry too is if you got an Alvin Kamara-type player. You know, if you had someone that was more of a pass-catching running back that could spell him a little bit. I think that would add a whole nother level to their offense, too. Yeah, it, it's really unfortunate. You know, two years ago, this team, I think, was the number one seed in the AFC. That's right, yeah. And now they look like a team that 
the Saints played their D game and beat. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, Joe, speaking of playing your D game, you know, I, I was a huge fan of his because he went to the, you know, he's from Mobile. He's a, he's a, he's a local boy that did good. He was great with the Gators with Dan Mullen. Uh, he's been really good in the NFL so far, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen someone get trolled as bad for what they did in the game than what Kadarius Tony did in the first uh, Thursday night game with the Chiefs where he dropped four really easy passes, including one that ended up being a pick six for Mahomes and frankly cost him the game. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, was kind of the story that became a little bit more of an afterthought, you know, with all the football the rest of the weekend. But, yeah, I mean, that was a big story. I felt like, you know, Tennessee, uh, Kansas City really kind of gave that game away down the stretch. But on the flip side, you know, even though Kelsey was not playing, you don't have Chris Jones. That being said, you still had, I think, potentially kind of a momentum-defining win for the Lions franchise. And I feel like, to me – Right now, this feels, you know, like like they may have the the start of something special here. You think about the end of last season, they won like six out of their last eight games, and they got just this close to making the playoffs last year. And I think it's been since they had Matt Stafford the last time they even made the playoffs, like the beginning of Matt Stafford with the Lions with him and Megatron. So this was a huge win, and this is the kind of game that – if I just told you that the Chiefs and the Lions were playing one another and that one team would have four drop passes, one of which resulted in a pick six, you'd be like, oh, well, I'm sure the Chiefs had a bad game, but the Lions just gave it away again. It's shocking to hear that the Chiefs are the one that made these mistakes and lost. Yeah, they were the culprit, which is very surprising under Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. You know, they don't lose very much. They don't lose very much at home. I think that was the first ever Patrick Mahomes loss in a season opener in his career as a starter. And so, I mean, the Lions, you know, they, they are definitely a contender for the Super Bowl this year in the NFC, I think, to be the representative. Um, you know, all offseason long, you heard people say that. I still wanted to see it on the field. And, you know, one weekend, they're kind of, you know, showing that to fruition, at least so far. And Dan Campbell, to me, has kind of built a team with an offense very similar to some of uh, Sean Payton's best teams with the Saints and Breeze. I felt like I was watching – a very similar offense to that with how they, they set up a lot of screens. They had kind of the short screen passes to the running backs, really smart football. And I saw a lot of that last Thursday. And you're talking about how, you know, Tannehill got to have that resurgence of his career with the Titans. I mean, I think Jared Goff is making the absolute most of his, uh, his time in Detroit. I mean, he got cast aside so that the, the Rams could go out and get Matt Stafford and, Get themselves, a, you know, get themselves in a Super Bowl, which they did. But golf was never a terrible quarterback. Now he held them back to an extent; it wasn't great. But I think he's playing a lot better now with the Lions than maybe he even did when the Rams made the Super Bowl when he was there. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. And the last thing I'll say about that: if you're Detroit, you could not have imagined or drawn up a better trade for value than what you got for Matthew Stafford. I mean, you got a number one pick, former number one pick in golf, a guy that's a more than serviceable NFL starter to replace Stafford, who's still only 29 years old. And then you got all this draft capital that they're using to build this roster. Hey, Jay, you know, it might be an equivalent uh, trade in a different sport. Like when the Braves got rid of um... – Got rid of Freddie Freeman to get uh, to get Olsen. It's kind of like that a little bit, right? 
the Braves definitely brought in a lot of draft capital, a lot of assets and prospects, I should say, you know, when they gave up a lot of their star players. And it's paying dividends down. And that dividends now with the players they're being able to lock up. And so, you know, a lot of times you see that in the NFL with the, when these teams, you know, flip these star players. You know, you look back three to five years later and suddenly all those first-round picks are paying off. Yeah, and that's what they're doing right now. I mean, I think – at the time, everyone's like, how could you get rid of Matt Stafford? But in retrospect, I think they made the right decision. I think so. I think so. And, and Joe, you know, I, I don't want to say that it was the wrong decision, but maybe the saddest thing, like, story I've seen in the NFL, and I don't know how long. I mean, I was so excited to get to see Aaron Rodgers in the Big Apple as the New York Jets quarterback. I mean, I think he was going to be the biggest deal that they've had in quarterback since Joe Namath was there. I mean, it was it was a great story. Um, and I didn't even get to watch him play a snap. I mean, I went to – I had some kind of event that I had to go to, and I get home, and all of a sudden I just see, you know, Aaron Rodgers tears Achilles four plays in the season in, – in the game, misses the rest of the season and threw one pass. And, I mean, with his age, you know, you'd think he would come back, and I'm sure – I don't know what this, the effects of the, the, the contract is with the Jets, but, I mean, it, it's possible that that's the last time he ever plays a football game. Yeah, I wondered that too, Dan, because, you know, I don't remember as many Achilles injuries that I've seen in the NFL over the years, especially with a player at that age at 39. I, I've never seen that for a quarterback to come back, and so there's not really that precedent. Um, to me, uh, you know, it was odd seeing it happen so early in the game. I don't think I've ever seen that. Like, it made me think back to, you know, Trent Green getting hurt before the 1999 season with the Rams, or I think about Tom Brady getting hurt in the season opener and missing mm-hmm. the rest of the season, I think, in 08 um, when, when he got injured against the Chiefs. And so, you know, you don't see this very often where you have a starter. Obviously, everybody's excited about, and they go out so quickly. I, I just hated it for the Jets fans. You know, hate it for the league as a whole because we're just kind of robbed of what was just going to be, I think, uh, an incredible season watch for the Jets. I mean, and it was the first time the Jets had been excited about football since, what, the second year that Rex Ryan was there. And even that kind of excitement was more about just how great their defense was. But there hasn't been any excitement over the Jets' offense maybe in my entire life. I, I don't know, Joe. I can't think of it. We had the – Brett Favre season. Like, he had some good offensive numbers even though they missed the playoffs. Right. And, and that was – yeah, I mean, but you kind of felt like the, the Aaron Rodgers had a lot more left in his career than Brett Favre was when he got there. Brett Favre coming to the Jets was like when Aaron Rodgers went to the I – mean, sorry, Brett Favre going to the Vikings was the way, in my mind, it was Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets. About the same age, you knew that Brett Favre still had three or four good years in him. And, you know, I thought that Aaron Rodgers had three or four more good years than him. And in my mind right now, I want him to come back and play another season. But I, I just don't know that he will. I mean, to me, he's a guy that um, he likes playing football and everything, but he also has his own interests. And he's got a he's got a wife that's in Hollywood that he's done all the things about trying to be on TV and everything. And I could definitely see Shailene Woodley saying – well, you gave her one more chance, and this is what happened. Do you do you need any more information? I got all yeah, the hookups, I got all the hookups for you in Hollywood. Whatever you want to do, Aaron. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I 
saw something today. I think he posted on social media that, that he intends to come back, but you know, it, it's going to be a long road. And you know, that you could easily see somebody, you know, going to be forty um, later this year. You know, they might decide that it's just not worth the training and rehab to try to come back all the way to that level. And so we will see. I mean, that, I, I don't know if he'll play another snap or not. Um, you know, it was interesting to me with the speculation we saw on uh, the news. You know, the last couple of days about you know who. The, the Jets were going to bring in. Um, even saw like you know some rumors about Tom Brady that I found interesting. But it looks like right now that Zach Wilson is going to be the starter the rest of the way, at least for now. And it's still kind of um, crazy to me that the Jets found a way to win that game, and suddenly uh, Zach Wilson gets another chance. I mean, th- this is so crazy that Zach Wilson goes from being the number two overall pick. Uh, to being vilified for not doing that great because he has a terrible team around him. They suddenly go out and get Aaron Rodgers and they upgrade the talent a lot all around him. And when Aaron Rodgers gets hurt four plays into the game, suddenly you get to see Zach Wilson with actual talent around him and what he can do. I mean, he was great at BYU. Um, You know, Zach Wilson had all those stories about him and his flirtations with his mom's friends and all that kind of stuff that was getting thrown out there. He was getting made fun of a lot and he had some really poor games last year. But that was because the talent really was that bad. And so I was kind of interested, like, you know, when I knew that Aaron Rodgers gotten hurt, I was like, well, they could still win this game because they really did vastly upgrade the receiver position around them, the offensive line, because they were doing it for Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I mean, Garrett Wilson's one of the best young receivers in the NFL, and you've got great players on defense like Sauce Gardner and others that really make this, you know, a really good team, you know, their head coach is a defensive guy. And so they're going to still be, I think, a team that can be a playoff caliber team if Wilson can just limit turnovers the rest of the way. And I think, you know, the flip side, the story that's obviously more of a footnote with what happened, unfortunately, to Aaron Rodgers is the Bills offense to me just did not look very good at all. You know, you see some regression there. And I'm starting to be kind of a little bit concerned. You know, I think over the last year or so, they changed, obviously, coordinators. And so I, this team, it looks like they had a wide-open window, but now suddenly I've got a lot of questions. I mean, Josh Allen threw, what, three interceptions that game? And I actually heard him give a press conference where he apologized, which you don't hear quarterbacks apologize very often. But, I mean, Josh Allen sounded like he was on the verge of tears. He was so upset with himself with the way he played in that game. Yes. Yes. And so when I look at like, you know, the, the two teams that are kind of like Super Bowl, uh, you know, caliber teams, obviously the Chiefs and obviously the Bills, I've definitely got more concerns right now about the Bills because they have not done it before with this group. Yeah, I, mean, I thought with the Chiefs, it, it was more like, you know, Tony had the nightmare game of his life. They didn't have Travis Kelsey and Chris Jones. And they didn't have, uh, they didn't have Chris Jones either, you know. And then you also add in the fact that the Lions were a team that were hungry. You know, they, they got a lot better in the offseason. They knew they had a good football team, and they went out and showed it. So I, I think that was more just a lot of those kind of circumstances lining up. And with the Bills, I mean, it looks like they could be taking a step back. Right. It's like you had, like, your A team out there, and you could not even, you know, beat another team's backup who was in there, you know, just because of what happened. That's right. I mean – you know, there wasn't really a lot of teams I thought that looked great in the opening weekend with the exception of one, and that's the last one we're going to talk about. That's the Dallas Cowboys beating the rival Giants 40 to nothing in a rainstorm. 
I mean, what was that, Joe? You never see teams get beat 40 to nothing in the NFL. I mean, that's part of the reason that I don't like to bet on NFL games because you can never get a line that's like more than seven and a half, nine and a half, anything like that. You just don't see games like this in the NFL where people get beat up the way they did. Yeah, I mean, that was very impressive, thoroughly impressive for the Cowboys to win that game in primetime, Sunday night football, on the road against a team that won a playoff game. Last year, if you're the Giants, you're kind of thinking they might be a team now in the NFC with kind of had that changing of the guard. You don't have as many great quarterbacks now in the NFC. You thought they might have as good a chance as anybody. And for the Cowboys to completely shut them out, yeah, that, that definitely impressed me. I would also add as, a, as another kind of honorable mention team, very impressed similarly with the San Francisco 49ers. Mm-hmm. Brock Purdy coming off that injury, I mean, he looked better than ever. Yeah, I mean, I think Purdy finished like what, like some somewhere in the range of like nineteen to twenty three for three hundred yards and three touchdowns. It was a very like solid performance all around, like like incredibly efficient, good numbers. And everyone who was uh, was hating on Purdy, I mean, he for real was going to be a guy that's going to be a multiple years starter, and it was not a flash in the pan. I don't think. Right, I was thinking all offseason, why are you not going out and getting a quarterback? You know, why are you not in the Aaron Rodgers sweepstakes? And I guess, you know, they answered that question. Uh, I would say based on early returns, uh, they got the better end of that deal. I think so. So, all players out to Aaron Rodgers, and I hate it because he may be the most talented quarterback we've ever seen in the NFL. And someone who I always thought that if the Packers had invested a little bit more in the talent around him, he could have won four or five Super Bowls. Um and I just, you know, I hope that we get to see him one more year. But I said, when you think about the fact that he just got married, he just got married to Shailene Woodley, who's one of the biggest actresses in Hollywood. They don't have any kids yet. She's a lot younger than him. It seems a lot like what I'm seeing with Nadal, which is someone that was so driven in playing sports their entire life. But now that they're they're married, you know, now they can switch into being an adult and being fatherhood. And I kind of think that's what's going to happen to Aaron Rodgers. It easily could, you know, once he kind of thinks about it. And I'm not sure he ever really made a huge commitment past this season either. Exactly. All right, well, we got a commitment talking about some college football that's coming up next. And we had just an incredible week, too. Uh, probably the best second week of the season I can ever remember. And we're going to talk about some shocking upsets from from horns up to, to, to gig them down and all everything in between. And I want to thank everybody for listening. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, see us in live and living color. And of course, subscribe to our, our podcast on Spotify. And of course, follow us on Twitter at DJ Sports Show. We always have some good commentary. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Jeff.